Welcome, everybody. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this book of Acts that you've given us to, to show us the example of the early church, to teach, <clears throat> to teach us important lessons about how we can fulfill the responsibilities that you've given to us, to be faithful to you and to your word, and to spread the precious message in the gospel. We ask that you will help us to be energized to go out to, to proclaim the truth of your word as we study this book of Acts this evening. Thank you for these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So tonight we're going to be looking at Acts part one, Jesus Christ, the living Lord. He's a living Lord. He was resurrected from the dead. And the book of Acts is all about what he did after that through the power of the Holy Spirit that was imparted to his followers. The book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, in the full name of it, is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke in the second book written by Luke. Luke was a physician, a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, and an eyewitness to many of the events chronicled in Acts. So the books of the New Testament were either written by apostles or close associates of the apostles. So Mark was a close associate of Peter, and Luke was a close associate of Paul. So even though Mark and Luke weren't apostles, they got their message from apostles. Here's what we know about Luke. The author of the book of Acts is Luke, a companion of the apostle Paul, as I said. We can read about that in Philemon, verse 24, as well as in Acts. By profession, he was a physician. We learned that in, in the book of Colossians, chapter 4. Many believe he was a Gentile because he was not listed with those of the circumcision in Colossians 4.11. But he's mentioned in, in verse 14 of Colossians 4. However, this may be a more technical term for Jews, this of the circumcision. And Luke may have been a Gentile proselyte to Judaism. So he may have been, he may have been a proselyte to Judaism or he may have been a, a God-fearer, a Gentile who attended services at the synagogue. Luke may have been a native of Antioch in Syria, given the number of times he refers to it. He refers to Antioch quite often in the book of Acts. He lived at Philippi for a while, and he was with Paul when Colossians and Philemon were written, because Paul mentions Luke in Colossians and Philemon. He was faithful to Paul to the end. We know that in, in 2 Timothy. 11, which was the last book, the last epistle that Paul wrote. He was also the author of the Gospel of Luke, as is evident from a comparison of Luke 1.3 and Acts 1.1, which were addressed to the same person, Theophilus. And Acts 1.1 refers to his former account, or, or treatise. Also the same polished Greek, the same style, and the same Pauline content are used in both. Internal evidence, that's evidence found inside the book. Evidence of the authorship of Luke. The we sections indicate he was on those occasions a companion, a fellow traveler of Paul. So he, he talks about we, so we know that at those times he was a companion of Paul. He was traveling with Paul. The rest of the book is by the same author, the same style and unity throughout the book. Now, alleged differences in style can be explained. So, so there are some sections of the book which uh, critics will say, well, that, that's a different style of writing. Well, that can be explained by his use of sources. Luke, Luke tells us that he used sources. And so those sources, of course, would have a different style of writing than Luke. And also, uh, Luke, when Luke quotes from the Old Testament, he's using the, the Septuagint. So, of course, that is a a different style than, than Luke would use because that was written two centuries before Paul, or before Luke. 
the internal uh, evidence. Uh, alleged differences in theology are due to Luke's interests being more ecclesiastical and Paul's more theological. So, so some will point out differences in, in theology between uh, the book of Acts and, and Paul's epistles, but that's simply due to the fact that Luke's major area of interest is in, in ecclesiastical matters, in other words, how the church operates, how the church works, whereas Paul is more concerned with theological matters. Uh, medical language suggests that Luke was the author. So in both the Gospel of Luke and, and, um, and in the book of Acts, the author tends to look at things the way a doctor would. So that's another indication that Luke wrote the books. It must have been Luke by process of elimination. Well, uh, Timothy and Silas and Titus, other people that we might suspect maybe wrote the book of Acts, they're all referred to in the third person, he, him. Uh, whereas Luke, the, 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 the author of, of the book of Acts, refers to we. So uh, by process of elimination, Luke is among that we. He, he refers to these other men as in, in the third person. Acts was written by the same author as the Gospel of Luke. The early church fathers attributed to Luke. Many fathers uh, quote from the book of Acts, of course, because it's so fundamental to the uh, founding of the early church. Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Polycarp, the Didache. The Didache is a, uh, an early church writing. It mentions that, that Luke wrote the book of Acts. Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Tertullian. Clement of Alexandria. So there's two Clements here. Uh, sometimes it's difficult to keep the two straight. There's Clement of Rome and Clement of Alexandria. This Clement of Rome is actually thought to be the Clement who's mentioned in, in the epistles of Paul. Uh, Clement, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, and Origen. Even the heretic, the Gnostic heretic Marcion, accepted Luke as the author of the book of Acts. The Gospel of Luke, written by Luke, is quoted by Paul in the canonical book of the New Testament. 1 Timothy 5.18 cites Luke 10.7. So, he, he, Paul refers to the writings of Luke. There is overwhelming archaeological confirmation of it being written by a knowledgeable companion of Paul and a contemporary of the events, as Luke was. So some uh, men who, have, who are diehard uh, skeptics, atheists, uh, once they look into the archeological aspect of the, the book of Luke and the book of Acts and they see what a, what a great historian he was, they change their thinking oftentimes about uh, the authorship of Luke. Acts was written sometime after AD 60 and before AD 69. The book ends with Paul being imprisoned in Rome and doesn't pro provide any conclusion to his trial. It also doesn't mention the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Luke wrote during the final events of Paul's life, before he was martyred for his faith. We can narrow that down a little bit more. Acts ends with Jerusalem and the temple still standing, so that's how we know it had to be before 70 AD. And, and Paul alive and well in Roman in a Roman prison. So this indicates that Acts is written before Jerusalem fell in AD 70 and before Paul was martyred by AD 68. Further, there is no indication the Jewish war had begun. That began in AD 66. And of course it eventually culminated in, in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And then we know from history, uh, ultimately it um, resulted in the destruction of Masada a little bit later. Nor had Nero's persecutions commenced. Those started in AD 64, so it had to be before that. What is more, James, the brother of Jesus, is still alive. 
Now, I mentioned before that there are two Jameses in the New Testament, James, the brother of the Apostle John, and James, the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, is still alive, and he dies, according to Josephus, in AD 62. The um, death of James, the, the brother of, of uh, the Apostle John, is described in the Book of Acts. But uh, James, the brother of Jesus, is still alive at this time. On the other hand, the book of Acts must have been written after AD 54, when Gentiles began to be attracted to Christianity in large numbers. So since Luke gears his message to them, those are the people Luke is primarily speaking to, the Gentile Christians. Most likely it was written when Luke had time while Paul was in jail in Acts 23. Paul was arrested in Jerusalem and He's held for some time, then he's finally sent to Rome. But since Paul came to Rome in AD 60 and was there two years, about AD 61 or 62 is the, is the likely date that Luke compiled all of these things together that he wrote about in the Book of Acts. The landmarks. The Acts of the Apostles details the post-Great Commission history of the early church, how it is founded and organized, and how it responded to the problems it faced. Luke told the story of how this rapidly growing community of believers received the power of the Holy Spirit, the promised counselor and guide, and were enabled to witness, to love, and to serve the Lord. The apostles were at the forefront of this group witnessing to Jerusalem and eventually the known world about their faith in Christ through personal testimony, preaching, and defending the good news before the authorities. They shared the gospel with boldness and courage, even when faced with imprisonment, beatings, plots, and riots. In fact, the persecution they experienced was actually a catalyst for the spread of Christianity. Beginning in Acts chapter 13, the book of Acts shifts almost exclusively to the missionary journeys of Paul, ending with his trip to Rome as a prisoner. So up to that time, we, we kind of we kind of jump around uh, talking about Peter and Stephen and Philip and uh, Peter taking the gospel to Cornelius, things like that, in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. But once we get to chapter 13, it's pretty much exclusively about uh, the missionary journeys of Paul, taking the gospel to the Gentiles. There are several different ways that we can outline the book of Acts. So I'll just Show you, show you some of those. We can, um, we can outline it geographically. In the first 12 chapters, it goes, the Gospels goes from Jerusalem to Antioch. We learn about that in the first 12 chapters. Then, as I said, once we get to chapter 13 through chapter 28, the Gospel goes out from Antioch to Rome. And Rome was, or excuse me, Antioch was a, was a very good logical source to, to begin these missionary journeys because at that time in the first century, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. So it's quite uh, logical that they use that as their base of operations for their missionary work. We can look at the Book of Acts ethnically. In the first seven chapters, the gospel goes to the Jews, the beginnings of the church were among the Jews, among Jewish converts to Christianity. From there, we go to the Samaritans in chapter 8. The gospel begins to go forth to the world, and then to the world, to the entire known world of the Greek-speaking Mediterranean world, chapters 9 through 28. So we can look at it ethnically. We can also look at it biographically. So the first 12 chapters are the ministry of Peter and others, 
and the last chapters, 13 through 28, can be seen as the, the ministry of Paul and others. So we can look at it biographically. We can look at it theologically. The, the first chapter is the ascension of Christ. That's in the first chapter of the book of Acts. And then in chapter two, we see the descension, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then the rest of the book is the extension of the gospel, chapter three through 28. So we can look at it theologically. We can look at it dispensationally. Now, when I say dispensationally, I don't, I'm not using the term dispensation as we normally think of that term, because we normally think of dispensations as dividing up the entirety of human history into uh, dispensations, usually seven dispensations, you know, the, the age of innocence and the age of law and so forth, uh, the, the several different dispensations. But I'm not talking about those dispensations. I'm just talking strictly about the book of Acts. And I also need to point out that I'm not talking, I'm, I'm not using the word dispensation the way that people like Les Felick would use it. Because Les Felick teaches that first there was a Jewish church and then there was a Gentile church. That's not what the book of Acts teaches. That's not what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament teaches that there's just one church composed of one new man, Jews and Gentiles not two churches. So I, I'm just using the word dispensation as, as uh, dividing this period of time into different periods. So the first seven chapters are about the formation of Christianity. The chapters eight through 12 are about the transition to Christianity. In the Mediterranean Greek speaking world. And then finally, 13 through 28, beginning with the missionary journeys of Paul, the expansion of Christianity to all of the, the known world at that time. The value of the Book of Acts. Why is the Book of Acts so important? Well, historically, is a factually accurate account of the times. As I mentioned before, skeptics uh, have found that to be true when they really looked at the archaeological evidence and, and seen what a great historian Luke really is. Doctrinally, it provides important teaching about the Messiah, the Holy Spirit, and the resurrection. Biographically, it is a crowded platform of 110 characters, both Christian and non-Christian. So even though it's a book about the, the acts of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit works through people. And it's amazing how many people there are in the book of Acts. There's 110 characters that are mentioned in the book of Acts. Evangelistically, it provides a pattern for missions in the journeys of Paul. It shows us how missions were done in the early church. Dispensationally, it shows the crucial transition from Judaism to Christianity. It began the church began among Jewish people, um, people who were still connected in the synagogue, and then gradually it expanded to include Gentiles. So we, we see this, this movement during the uh, events of the book of Acts. Spiritually, it provides a vivid account of a spirit-directed church. So there's a church composed of fallible people, but still the Holy Spirit is working and directing that church just as he is today. I should also mention that it's a book of great sermons. In the first part of the book, we have sermons by Peter and others. Peter to Jewish proselytes, this is on the day of Pentecost, of course. Um, then in chapter three, Peter to the Jewish people, he explains to them that they are responsible for the death of Christ. Then in chapter seven, there's that important sermon given by Stephen, the first deacon, the first martyr, given to Jewish leaders. Then we have the sermon of Peter to Gentiles. This is involving when Peter is, is told through a vision that he is to go to the home of Cornelius and to take the gospel to the Gentiles. 
So that's another great sermon. Then in chapters 13 through 28, we have sermons by Paul and others to the Jews in Antioch, to pagans in Lystra. Uh, this was the situation where they uh, mistook Paul and Barnabas as uh, the gods come down to earth. Paul had to set them straight about that. Uh, then Mars Hill to, to the Gentiles in Athens. Remember the, the famous sermon that Paul gave went to the people of Athens at, at Mars Hill. And then to Christians in the book of Ephesus. Or excuse me, the city of Ephesus. To the Christians in the city of Ephesus. When Paul is about to take leave of them. The gospel, Luke began the book of Acts by referring to the former account, the Gospel of Luke, about all that Jesus began both to do and teach. The Gospels recorded who Jesus was and what he did during his earthly ministry. But that was just the beginning of the story. Jesus didn't stop working when he ascended into heaven. He passed the baton to his disciples, and until he returns, he will continue the work he started. Redemption's scarlet thread wove itself throughout the history of the Old Testament. The fall of the Garden of Eden, the lives of the patriarchs, the kingdom of Israel, the prophets, and then burst into a bright splash of color in the New Testament, dominating the, the tapestry of the Age of Grace. The story of the early church shows us our ongoing role in the weaving of this tapestry. So the tapestry still isn't complete and won't be until Christ returns. As God's agents, we are to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ becomes a joint heir with him in his inheritance, but they also become his ministers to a lost world, called to share his worship, his word, and his ways. The history of the book of Acts. The book of Acts chronicles the period of time between Jesus' ascension and Paul's imprisonment in Rome in the mid-60s AD. The 30-year period, roughly, covers the founding of the Christian church and the earliest missions. So here's a, a chart of some of the events historically in, in the book of Acts. So AD 30 to 35, Pentecost and the formation of the early church. Uh, I chose to begin this period with 30. Um, there's considerable debate among evangelical scholars about what was the year of the crucifixion. So the, mo the two most popular candidates right now are AD 30 and AD 33. And evangelical scholars are, are pretty much split on uh, their ideas about whether it was 30 or 31. It has to do with uh, which years had a Friday uh, in relation to um, the Passover. And 30 and 33 are the two leading candidates. So that's why I said AD 30 through 35, the Pentecost and the formation of the early church. AD 35 through 47, the church expanded into Judea and Samaria. Uh, in about AD 44, James, the son of Zebedee and the brother of the apostle John was martyred in AD 44. And we find that in the, the book of Acts, uh, chapter 12, I believe. Uh, in AD 47 through 48, Paul's first missionary trip occurred. AD 47 through 48. And we, we are able to coordinate some of the activities in Paul's missionary journeys with with secular history, so we can tie the two together. In AD 49 through 52, Paul's second missionary trip. In AD 52 to 57, Paul's third missionary trip. AD 60 through 62, Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. And the book of Acts ends during that period of time. The events described in the book of Acts end with, with Paul's, Paul's first imprisonment. But we know from 
history and also from the New Testament epistles that there was a second imprisonment of Paul in about AD 66 to 67. That's when we find Paul's second imprisonment and it eventually resulted in his martyrdom. And Peter was martyred about that same time. So that, those last events, Paul's second imprisonment and martyrdom, those are, those are outside the book of Acts. The Roman emperors in power during this time were Caligula, AD 37 through 41, Claudius, AD 41 through 54, and Nero, AD 54 to 68. And it was during Nero's reign that both Paul and Peter were thought to be martyred. The travel tips, things that we can learn, the implications and applications of the book of Acts. First of all, a very important one, persecution advances God's purposes. In typical paradoxical fashion, persecution doesn't hurt the church, it actually helps it grow. Instead of being surprised or hurt when the world persecutes us, we should prepare for it, keeping our focus on the Lord and the reward he promises to those who endure to the end whatever that end may be. Who is God to you? Saul's conversion to Christianity. Christianity highlights two important questions. Questions that all of us as believers ask ourselves. First of all, who are you, Lord? When we first encounter the Lord Jesus. And what do you want me to do? The Bible answers the first question, saying that Jesus is the Lord, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Once you accept that, you can go on to the second question, which can only be answered by surrendering your life to God. He will guide you and help you find your role in his greater plan. Bob talked about that in, in Sunday school a little bit when he talked about how uh, the Holy Spirit he was taking his cue from, from the book of Acts, of course. The, the Holy Spirit providentially guides us to be at the right place and the right time to do the work that God wants us to do. Who is the central character in the story of your life? The book of Acts ends abruptly without saying what happens to Paul. Why? Because Paul wasn't the central character of Acts. The Holy Spirit was just as Jesus was the protagonist of the Gospels. The Spirit's work has continued long after the life of Paul, a work in which you, thousands of years later, play a part. The bigger story is God's. So some of the aspects of the book of Acts, the theme of Acts, the theme is, of course, the propagation of the Gospel of Christ. It is the acts of the apostles in the foundation and spread of early Christianity. Or more properly, it is the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. The key verse in the book of Acts, uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So that's in a nutshell what we read about all through the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit empowers faithful witnesses to take the gospel first to Jerusalem and Israel, all Judea, and then Samaria and then to the end of the earth. Here's a chart showing a comparison of the, of the gospels and the book of Acts. The Gospels tell us what Jesus began to do and teach, and Acts tells us what Jesus continued to do and teach. After his ascension, he sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to empower believers to act on his teachings in his Acts. The Gospels tell us about the foundation of the church in, in Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus talked about how I will build my church. And then there's a reference to Ephesians 2 here, 
which talks about the, the apostles and prophets being the, the foundation of the church, the foundation of that church that, that Jesus built. And then in the book of Acts, we learn about the origin and the growth of the church. Acts 2, of course, the day of Pentecost, when the church grows by thousands. And 1 Corinthians 12, 13 talks about how the church is a body composed of one new man, Jew and Gentile. The book of Acts is a fulfillment of John 14, 12. Greater works than these he will do because I go to my father. The works of the apostles were not greater in kind, were certainly greater in extent since they carried the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Sometimes um, Pentecostal and charismatic Christians uh, misinterpret this scripture in John 14, 12, greater works than these he will do because I go to my father. Uh, they think that means, well, since Jesus just raised a few people from the dead, we're gonna raise lots of people from the dead. And since uh, Jesus healed uh, some people, we're gonna heal many people. Well, that's not, that's not the point of this, this scripture. When Jesus proclaimed his message, his message was limited to those who could hear his voice within the sound of his voice. Through the radio and the television and the internet, we can reach millions of people today. So those are the, the greater works that we do, not, not uh, sensational things like uh, make, making people's uh, legs of equal length or something like that. <laughs> Which uh, the uh, pseudo-evangelists want to do. That's not the point, doing, doing sensational miracles. The, the point is that we are, have a part, God has given us a part in performing the greatest miracle of all, bringing people to Jesus. It's also the, the book of Acts is the fulfillment of, of Matthew 16, 18, which I mentioned before. The, the initial fulfillment of Jesus' statement, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So in the book of Acts, we, we see how this was brought about, that God, that God actually began building his church and he's still building it today. Uh, there are several titles that have been given to the book of Acts. Acts has been called the Gospel of the Holy Spirit, the Book of Action, the Gospel of the Resurrection, the Fifth Gospel, and the Acts of the Holy Spirit. So those are all good descriptions of the Book of Acts. The work of the Holy Spirit. He is the source of effective witness, of miraculous power, of wisdom in the church, of administrative authority, and spiritual guidance. I mentioned before, as Bob did in Sunday school on Sunday, that the Holy Spirit providentially guides us to be where we need to be, when we need to be there, to do the work that God has given us to do. The book of Acts is a book with no conclusion. In one sense, the book of Acts never ends. The work of the church continues until Jesus comes. Prominence of persons, I mentioned this before, God, God's plan features persons, 110 of which are named in Acts. So it is, once again, the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit works through people. Acts is a book of history. Acts is an accurate account of the times. It provides an invaluable intersection with the non-Christian history of the period, revealing 10 major Roman and Jewish dates with numerous Roman rulers. It contains nearly a hundred historical facts that have been verified by secular sources. Luke was a very meticulous and accurate historian. Acts is a book of growth. There is growth of the church, of the word of God, and of faith. So often in, in today's church growth movement, that's all they concentrate is the growth in numbers of the church. But you can't have it's not 
of any point to have growth of the church unless you also have growth of the word of God and of faith. Those things must accompany any, any growth that takes place in the church. There are various names for Christianity in, in the book of Acts. First, it was called the way in chapter nine. Next, it was called the sect of the Nazarenes because Jesus, of course, was from Nazareth. That's where he grew up, spent most of his life in uh, Nazareth. So we read about that in chapter 24. And his followers were first called Christians in Antioch. We read about that in chapter 11, verse 26. So I mentioned this outline of, of the book of Acts. Chapters one through seven are the formation of the church. There are the first days of the church, the early days of the church. We read about the ascension of, the, of Christ in chapter one of Acts. In chapter two, we read about the ascension of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And then we read about the expansion of the early church in chapters two through four. We read about the first deliverance of the church in chapter four, the first discipline in the church in chapter five, that's the incident with Ananias and Sapphira. That's the first time that discipline had to be handed out in the early church. We learn about the first deacons of the church in chapter six. And in chapter seven, the first death, the first martyr in the church. Stephen, one of those deacons. In chapters 8 through 12, we learn about the transition of the church. It's beginning to go out into the Greek-speaking world. There are three conversions that take place in chapters 8 through 11. First of all, the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch, he was a son of Ham. Uh, then Saul, a Tarsian, Saul of Tarsus, on the road to Damascus, he was a son of Shem. Cornelius, an Italian, in chapter 10, was a son of Japheth. So there are these three important early conversions in, in the church from different races, different ethnic groups. The three conversions are followed by two persecutions, chapters 11 and 12. The first is because of Stephen and that whole incident. Then in chapter 12, we read about a persecution that arose after Peter. In chapters 13 through 28, which is essentially the, the ministry of Paul, his first missionary journey to defend the church's ministry, chapters 13 and 14, the first church summit to defend the church's Catholicity in chapter 15. And when I say Catholicity, I don't mean as in Roman Catholic, Catholicity is simply a, a way of saying universality. This was a, a, the first uh, crisis, you might say, that the church had to deal with was, is the gospel just for Jews or is it also for Gentiles? And do Gentiles need to become Jews first? Do they need to convert to Judaism? So the important outcome of this church summit was to uh, proclaim that the gospel was for all, Jew and Gentile, one new man. We read about the second missionary journey to deepen the church's charity in verses 16 through 18. And the reason I say to, to deepen the church's charity, remember on his second missionary journey, took up a collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem who were going through a famine. The third missionary journey was to disseminate the church's ministry, chapters 18 through 28, 16. Uh, then we read about the first imprisonment to define the church's mystery. And when I talk about the church's mystery, I mean the mystery of, of the church being a body composed of one new man, Jew and Gentile. Paul explains that uh, in his first imprisonment. And then 
as I said before, the, the second imprisonment is not in is not found in the Book of Acts. Uh, in order to learn about that a little bit, we need to look at First Timothy and Titus and Second Timothy to describe that is to describe the church's polity. And the word polity simply means church government, how the church is organized, how it functions. So let's take a closer, closer look at each of those items. In the formation of the church, the first days record the ascension of Christ, who is the head of the church, and the ascension of the Holy Spirit, by whom the church is born on the day of Pentecost. Then we see the expansion of the church, once the church is empowered by the Holy Spirit. What happened? How did these timid, obscure fishermen become poised, eloquent preachers of the gospel? Two reasons, no presence and a new power. You'll see these themes running throughout the book. There was a new presence. The apostles had thought that Jesus was dead, buried, gone. No, he was no more. But seeing him alive again, bodily risen from the dead, impacted them. They had despaired, but seeing him alive in glorified flesh gave them the greatest of hopes. They had written off their lives with Jesus as a fading dream, but now they experienced the power of everlasting life, of death being conquered. There was also a new power, of course, the Holy Spirit. He had come upon and was filling this group of believers, something Jesus promised would happen. They hadn't waited in vain. For the giving of the Holy Spirit. Under persecution, we observe the first deliverance of the church and the first discipline in the church. I mentioned before Ananias and Sapphira. Out of dissension, the first deacons are chosen. This section ends with the first death of a martyr in the church. So, fleshing that out a little bit, the apostles dealt with an in house situation a group of widows who felt neglected at the daily distribution of food. This led them to make a decision to appoint deacons, qualified, dedicated servants, who could take on that work, while the apostles devoted their attention to the specific work God had called them to, the study and teaching of God's word. One of those deacons, a man named Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, became the church's first martyr. He was a powerful witness to the gospel, doing great wonders and signs among the people. This got him in hot water with a group called the Synagogue of the Freedmen, Jews from other parts of the region who tried but couldn't put up an effective argument against Stephen's preaching. So as is so often the case, when people can't win an argument, they resort to violence. Like the Jewish leaders had done with Jesus, they took the low road, stirring up others to accuse Stephen of blasphemy. Stephen's witness continued, even when he spoke to the high priest. In fact, it got stronger. Going back to Abraham and continuing the story of the Messiah's history with the patriarchs Moses, Joshua, David, and Solomon. Stephen built a bulletproof case against the Jewish leaders. He called them to repent. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed their teeth at him. So, notice the expression, cut to the heart. That very same expression is used back in Acts chapter 2, when Peter spoke, on the day of Pentecost. So both groups of people, the people that, that Peter spoke to on the day of Pentecost and the people that, that Stephen spoke to were cut to the heart. They were impacted by the message they heard, but they responded very, very differently, didn't they? The, the people who heard the message and were cut to the heart in chapter two, they responded positively. But the people here responded negatively to that powerful message. They picked up the stones and killed him, taking off their outer garments and laying them 
at the feet of a young man named Saul. In the second major section, the transitional church occurs. Reconversion signaled the future ministry of the church. First, Ethiopian, the eunuch, was converted. Of Noah's three sons, he was a son of Ham. Next, a Tarsian, Saul of Tarsus, was converted, who was a son of Shem. Finally, an Italian, Cornelius, the Roman centurion, was converted to Christianity. He was a son of Japheth. Thus, the universality of the gospel was symbolized, embracing the whole human race. After three conversions, there were two persecutions. The first was because of Stephen, and the second because of Peter. The adage of, of church history was proven. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. For this leads to the great expansion of the church in the final section. God's choice of agent to spread the gospel to the end of the earth was as unlikely a candidate as could be imagined. Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee, who unlike many of his colleagues, who didn't want anything to do with this new sect of Christ followers, went after the church, hold on. So many of Saul's colleagues just completely avoided the church, but Saul wasn't content with simply avoiding the church. He went after them, hammer and tong, as we might say. This zealous radical gave Stephen Stoning an official thumbs up, and then he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. But Saul of Tarsus got saved. Jesus got hold of Saul, humbling him by leaving him no way to rely on his personal accomplishments, strengths, or ambitions. Saul of Tarsus had been a very proud man, but Jesus humbled him on the road to Damascus and completely changed his life, the life of the church, and our lives. Once Saul got going, there was no stopping him and the world would come to know him by his Latin name, Paul. While the church was established with Jews and made its transition to the Greek-speaking world, it made its greatest expansion to the Romans in the last chapters of Acts. This began with the first missionary journey of Paul, which spread the ministry of the church into Asia and from there into Greece and into the rest of Europe. As more Gentiles were saved, this gave rise to the first apostolic council, which prevented the Catholicity, the universality of the gospel. Paul's second missionary journey not only deepened the church's charity, I mentioned the collection that Paul took up, toward their poorer brethren, but it disseminated the church's mission into Europe as Paul responded to the call from the man of Macedonia, requesting that he come and help us. This led to the third missionary journey, which further disseminated the church's ministry all the way to Rome. In the unlikely missionary condition of Roman imprisonment, Paul defined the church's mystery of how Jew and Gentile could be brought together in one body and foreseen in the Old Testament. The Old Testament did talk about how the, the God of Israel would bring light to the Gentiles, would go out to the Gentiles. But in the Old Testament, Gentiles came to the God of Israel by coming to Israel. We see that in, in the case of, uh, of Ruth, for example. But in the New Testament, a new thing happens. Instead of bringing everybody to Israel, the church went out from Jerusalem, taking the message outward. And that was the mystery that was, had been revealed in the New Testament that wasn't yet seen in the, in the Old Testament, of one new man, of Jew and Gentile, coming together in one body. 
when Paul finally arrived in Rome, he testified to the local Jews, some of whom believed after hearing what he had to say. He lived for two years under house arrest, chained to one guard after another, or rather, they were chained to Paul. He had a captive audience coming in ships, drawing the guards out of their own lives and sharing about Jesus. It reminds me of the, uh, the army commander, one of his aides comes to him and says, we're surrounded. And the uh, commander responds by saying, good, we've got them just where we want them. <laughs> so uh, that's the way, the way that Paul looked at his imprisonment, being chained to the guards. It was an opportunity for evangelism. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence no one forgetting him so that's where the book of Acts ends but apparently Paul was released for a time and in the interim, he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus. In his second imprisonment, he wrote 2 Timothy, his last book, the last epistle that Paul wrote. These three books, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, are referred to as the pastoral epistles, as opposed to the, the church epistles, which are addressed to various churches. And with that, we will conclude part one of the Book of Acts. Next time, we'll be looking uh, more closely at some individual passages in the Book of Acts and seeing what we can learn from them. So at this point, I'll say a word of prayer, and then we'll open it up for discussion, for questions, comments. First, a word of prayer. Father, we are thankful for the pattern that you have shown us in the book of Acts, showing us how we are to do missions, how we are to do your work, how we are to spread the gospel, how the church is to be administered, how we are to resolve difficulties within the church. We thank you for all of the information, the examples that you've given us in the book of Acts. And we ask that you will help us to internalize them as we carry out our part in completing this tapestry that you are weaving. And we ask that you would help us to occupy until the Lord comes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.